Lord, often when we sit in silence, we recognize that the sound doesn't always come from the outside, but it comes from the inside too. We recognize sometimes that our bodies are tense and our breathing is shallow. And we ask that in this time, you would teach us to take deep breaths, both literally and figuratively, to breathe deeply of something that is good. Would you bring us into freedom? Freedom for our minds, freedom for our souls, freedom even for our bodies. We ask, Lord, as we gather, that you would continue to surprise us with your goodness. Many of us are so accustomed to kind of transactional relationships that we worry when we come into a place like this that maybe we haven't done enough for you, God, for you to do something good for us. But that's not how you work. You are always good. You are always generous. And sometimes that fact is just too much for us to believe or take in. And so in this time and in this space, we ask that you would remind us once again of who you are. To shape us into that fullest reality so that we can respond in celebration to your goodness and to your generous work on our behalf. We know that we come into this place with fears, with concerns, with problems that can't be solved quickly or easily. And we know that you see them and you hear them. You don't expect us to drop those things at the door. We bring them to you. And we ask that even in the most difficult, heavy burden, you would bring lightness and joy and perspective of just knowing that you see and that you care and that you are good. We ask this, and we're excited to see how you will answer. So we pray this in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to greet you in the strong and powerful name of our Lord Jesus. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here. And uh, it is the sixth Sunday after the epiphany of our Lord, which means that we get to be astonished as we look and see the activity of God, the light of God bursting into our world. Even as we sit in this sacred place, you can feel the light of God in this space. And uh, for that, we're grateful. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 126. And uh, I have friends who have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Uh, If you don't own one, this is a gift to you. If you just need to borrow one for the evening, uh, you're welcome to do that. Just leave it on your chair there. We also have some Bibles in Spanish. If you speak Spanish as your heart language or you're practicing Spanish, just say, I want a Spanish Bible. You can have that as well. But I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word Psalm 126 is a hymn, so I want you to hear this. 
like the song that it is. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 126. A song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. When the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So for the last number of weeks, we have been in this season of epiphany, and we have been talking about economics and the kingdom of God. And over the last number of weeks, but really over the last number of years, I have been trying to convince us, or maybe, um, maybe the biblical text has been trying to convince us, that we are not individualized, packaged, isolated beings that stand at a distance from our world or from one another. Instead, the Jewish Christian salvation story goes to these huge lengths, these great lengths to communicate that we are, in fact, very impo- we are very important parts of what we call this vast cosmological dynamic. In other words, we're intimately connected to the very elements of the universe. We are connected to one another and the elements of this universe. We are intricately connected to space and we're connected to time and neighbor in a very mysterious and a wonderful way. And by God, the very, the very universe is calling at us. The very universe is inviting us and urging us to be faithful, to do our part, to serve and to love so that we might experience what it means to be truly and fully human, to be fully alive. Now, most of the time, we have these outside voices that spend all kinds of energy trying to redefine us. We're labeled, we're called objects or competitors or consumers Commodities is what people and, and, and uh, organizations look at us like. We're, we're, cogs, uh, we're cogs in systems built by the likes of Pharaoh himself. But the biblical story that we read every single week insists that we are not his brick-making machines. We are human beings. And we are invited by the true human, Jesus of Nazareth, to enjoy the fruits of this mysterious and this wonderful, wonderfully created order. And sometimes that can be a little bit difficult to remember. So we read stories about it. And as you know, the Jewish story or the Jewish people have had this tumultuous history and their lives have been defined throughout their whole history by exile. And survival has been difficult. That was the case for those who sang uh, Psalm 120, uh, 126. And for a time, the exile experienced after the Babylonian invasion of 587 B.C. defined the Jewish people. But Isaiah the prophet tells us that God used a military leader named King Cyrus the Great or King Cyrus the Persian, whom you, who you see here on the, on the wall, to give them what they wanted more than anything else. It's King Cyrus helped them to gain what they longed for more than anything, and that was their freedom. Now, by his edict, 
they were finally given the freedom to go home to their, their city, Jerusalem. But when they arrived, they discovered that the city as they knew it was no longer the, the glorious city of God. Because the Babylonians came in and they wiped out Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem in rubble. The temple was burned. The defense systems were broken down. Their, their whole community was demolished. And the depths of grief that the first people who went into Jerusalem could not be, it cannot be explained when they first saw Jerusalem when they walked into town. Jerusalem was like the world before creation. There's a Hebrew word for this. We talked about it last week. Tohu wabohu. The city Jerusalem was like a wild wasteland. It was void and it was empty. But the story tells us that there were these three amazing leaders and they had an interaction with this redeeming God. They were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And they helped the pilgrims who were going back home to rebuild the temple and the city wall and reinstitute their law so they might become a thriving community again. And it was hard work. They had to wrangle with that land. They were making something. They were, they were working hard to make something wonderful out of it. They had to recruit volunteers. They had to organize their plans, raise funds, and they... They had to encourage one another. But finally, after all the work was done and there were blistered hands and sleepless nights and worry and prayers and promises made, their hope became a reality and their city was built again. Now, this is one of the many stories that the pilgrims would think about when they would make their annual trip to Jerusalem for the celebration that honored this history and the God that worked through this history and Psalm 126 is the song that they would sing as they made that journey. There they would be. They would be walking as a whole community together, remembering their history, singing this song. And it was an important song because it reminded all who could hear that, that by God, the people of God got to participate in making the whole world new. It was a world that provided life and opportunity and freedom. This song was an invitation to delight. It was the opposite of tohu wabohu. This song affirms and confirms what it means to be truly human and to be invited into the mission of God, to join in with God, to bring blessing to our needy world. And the pilgrims would sing this over and over and over. That is what this church is about, the 8th Street Church. And that is why we read this psalm. And that is why we sing this song together. Because like like Brian McLaren says, we hope to bring God's blessing to everyone, to you, wherever you are and whatever you believe. You are worthy to receive God's blessing. And if you'd like to join in with us in this mission and the faith that creates and nourishes it, you're welcome. And if you've been a part of the problem, like I have in my life, if you've been part of the problem, we invite you to switch sides and to become a part of God's solution with us. Now, last week, we looked at the creation narrative of Genesis chapter 1, and we agreed together that the essence of the Jewish Christian theology is what we call dirt theology. From dirt, Adama, God made human, Adam, and this human was to have a relationship with the very dirt, the very earth, and God gave this human the invitation to make this world hospitable for life. God, this great creator, 
established a place, a garden called Delight, Eden, and it essentially said to Adam, I want you to take this place and I want you to go make something of that place. And the same invitation is for us here in the 21st century. Go make something of of the world. Be an artist, be a physician, heal bodies, be a student, work at a grocery store, make great coffee, teach something, just teach something. Write music, get married, make love, make children, start businesses, create jobs, invent something. You have been invited to do this. In short, dirt theology is a divine invitation to participate with God in reestablishing His will here on earth. And we call that work. And in God's economy, there's this partnership that we have with God where we get to do the hard work of making something out of this world. And we've been talking about that a lot. But Psalm 126 is a different kind of song. It it has different nuances. It makes a shift. You notice this psalm is not about work. It's about something else. Something else is going on. Now, these pilgrims, as they told their history, would literally make an ascent to Jerusalem to symbolize that on the other side of their work, on the other side of the mountain, was something something far more glorious that their minds, than their minds could comprehend. They believed that God, in the end, would reestablish, in the end of time, I mean, would reestablish His divine will here on earth, and, and it would be to the, our benefit and the benefit of God's glory. And, and by their invitation to work and make something of this world, they felt like they were experiencing the future promise coming at them. They, in other words, they would work today in the present with a vision of tomorrow, the day of the Lord in mind. They would work today with the day of tomorrow in mind. And as they would make this journey up the mountain, they would imagine when they got to the top of the mountain, it would be like the final promised day that was in their mind. And they, they began, as they went up this mountain, to practice God's preferred future for His children And they began to believe that what God had for them in his future was taking place in them there in the present. They knew that when they arrived in Jerusalem, they would, this is how they knew this, because they knew that when they arrived in Jerusalem, they got to be a part of the greatest party they had ever attended. Now this song is not about work. This song is about celebration. This psalm is about thanksgiving and gratitude and partying. It's an all-out, full-on, no-holds-barred, dance-with-the-light-shade-on-your-head, champagne-for-breakfast, max-the-credit-cards, parades and ticker tape, confetti and convertibles, enjoyment parade for everyone. That is what Psalm 126 is. It's not about work. This song is about preparing people for sheer jubilation. You look bored, so let me say this to you again. This psalm is about preparing people for sheer jubilation. And as they sang and they told their stories of the past, and as they ascended up, they could begin to hear the music. The closer they got, they could could begin to smell the food. And as such, they were on the edge of seeing God's preferred future as they entered into that space. 
And as they traveled, they would laugh and they would rehearse the scenes and they remembered the activities of their God and they would tell the story of, stories of the saints that helped them get there. They would talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They told the story of Joseph and his brothers and how Joseph was a jailbird and how God used him to save a country. They talked about Moses as he led the people out of slavery Joshua, as he led the people into the promised land, they remembered Ruth's persistence, Deborah's courage, and Rahab's insistence. They talked about Daniel's faithfulness, and they spoke about David's victories, his faults, his shortcomings, his redemption, and then God's promise through David. And they remembered that Solomon had built the temple, the temple and then they talked about the kings that followed, that were to their demise. It was because of these and, and the God that brought them up that mountain, that they could, it was because of these saints and these stories and the God that was bringing up them up this mountain that they could see their sons graduating and their daughters getting married and their grandchildren being born. This ascent was one big party. And the response and the reason they sang was because the people were thankful. The party didn't begin once they got to Jerusalem. The party started well before that. Do you know that the party begins in the middle of our journey? It doesn't begin when we get to the end. The party begins at the beginning of the ascent. When I was a kid in church, we would sing this hymn. And it would go like this. When we all get to heaven, I like just all the old people, I just remember them. What a day of rejoicing that will be. You know the song. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. And you felt like you were marching, right? <laughs> now, I do not. I'm not making fun of the hymn. It's great, but it's kind of goofy. Because when you put it next to the hymn of 126 in the Psalms, it reminds us that as we ascend towards God's redemption, that the party should start now, not when we get there. And we're not just talking about work. We're talking about party. We're talking about celebration. And it will max out once we get to the top of the mountain. But it, we practice it now. And in creation, we see that, that God is in the dirt, and we get to go to work with God. We call this dirt theology. But the pilgrims, as they ascended, as they ascended up the mountain, were not, they weren't dreaming of dirt theology because they were not dreaming of their creation narrative. They were dreaming of their new creation narrative. And new creation, what God is about to do and how God has invited us to participate in what God is doing is not just about dirt theology. It's what we call taste bud theology. Taste bud theology is this. My friends, we are designed to experience pleasure. Real, deep, sensual, physical, bodily, fleshly, delightful pleasure. At the risk of being overly graphic, the beginning of creation is sex. Bodies made from dust participating in something euphoric and transcendent. No wonder sex is one of the earliest and oldest Old Testament metaphors to describe God's pleasure. It's pleasure that we 
personally experience, but, but it's pleasure that we also can offer another. And it comes in all kinds of different forms. It looks like real charity and acceptance and forgiveness and hospitality and compassion and generosity and friendship, covenant, marriage, sex, parenthood. In the world that we are building, a world of delight, as we build it with God, we are building God's kingdom. And in God's created order, or in this new day that is happening now, in the coming of the kingdom that is moving from our future into our present, in God's economy, we need both dirt theology and taste bud theology. Now, sometimes what we do is we combine words like guilty pleasure And we go, whoops, maybe we're just having a little bit too much fun. We are Christians after all. (laughs) But friends, God created taste buds in humans. And he just said, this is very good. You know, you don't need taste buds to survive. You just need them to taste. They're designed for pleasure. And when we experience pleasure, the euphoric, otherworldly, sensual, bodily pleasure that comes in full measure in God's economy, there is a response. First, it is satisfaction, and then it's gratitude. Our thanksgiving as a people doesn't come out of obligation or because the thunder wind or because we have a day off out of our regular routine, or even because Abraham Lincoln said that we should be thankful in November. Our gratitude should come from what God has done. And our natural God-given response when we see his activity should be party and celebration. Awe, wonder, amazement, amusement, astonishment, mouth wide open, stunned, shocked, surprised, epiphany. When the Spirit descended on the people in the New Testament, Luke tells us that awe came upon them all. That means it's time to get the junior high band out here to play us some songs, get the high school show choir to dance and entertain and sing. Somebody should organize a parade. Can you believe that all that God has done? Gratitude should spill from us like it did with those pilgrims who sang all the way up the mountain in Psalm 126. And I think we need to take, the H Street Church needs to take a lesson from the Jewish playbook of celebration because I'll just admit it, Christians and our denomination specifically stinks at celebrating. We have not followed the lead of our Jewish brothers or sisters or our early Christian brothers or sisters at all. And if we believe that we should obey the Bible, then we should throw really good parties and we should laugh and celebrate and dance all the time. Celebration is this full-bodied experience, minds recalling, hearts being moved, will surrender, and it should last for days and days. Fun should be a serious issue for us because taste bud theology is front and center in God's economy. You know, Christian people used to be good at fun. We had the corner on the market. The sacraments themselves, it it sounds boring, but the sacraments themselves are a means of God's grace. It's just a fancy way uh, to say that they are themselves party, uh, celebration-centered. Even those things that we don't officially call sacraments, 
like uh, baptism or the Eucharist here in our denomination. And what I'm talking about is like confirmation and reconciliation and the anointing of the sick or marriage or ordination or holy orders. Even though we might not consider those as a Protestant church, sacraments, they are sacramental because they remind us that all good things carry within them the sacred. Every time we come to this table, every time we baptize somebody, every time somebody is ordained, every time there is anointing of the sick or a funeral and we celebrate a pyre, every time we, we celebrate something good, we are reminded that there is God in the sacred. Every time we see the smile of a Down syndrome child or the jubilation of a puppy or the graceful arch of a dancer's back or the camera work that comes from a, a fine photographer, good, good coffee, good, fine wine, good friends, honest conversations, they're all call, they all call us to notice the sacred, the good and the true and the real and the God in our midst. And that is when we are most fully alive. That is when we are most fully human. And the center of everything is this, that it is in those spaces where Jesus is. Whenever and wherever we experience the good, that is Jesus' presence among us. And you know Jesus' reputation among the religious. They would say he was a partier, a drunkard, a rabble-rouser. Jesus. Eh, Jesus. His reputation, however, among the broken and the drunks and the wife beaters and the felons and the diseased and those with mental illness and the promiscuous was, oh, if the kingdom of God looks like that, I am in. His brand of fun was welcoming and it was inclusive. And I think, I think we're missing something. We're just missing fun. In her book, Leaving Church, Barbara Brown Taylor said that she noticed that when she was a pastor, she was always invited to the Christmas party, but never the New Year's Eve parties. <laughs> you know, we have sanctified kinds of fun. In order to be holy, we, you know, we separate ourselves from the world and and in turn, we've abandoned what the kingdom of God uh, that Jesus embodied looks like because we, we, we don't want to get too crazy. We don't want to set a bad precedent. We don't want to embarrass someone. We don't want to be a bad example. We don't want to be too undisciplined or immodest. I love our denomination. The discipline and the courage and the mission and the theology is something I'm never giving up. We do dirt theology really, really well. But the legalism and the puritanical nature of our history has not done us any favors. The straitjacket of legalism does nothing but cause shame and guilt. And it certainly does not give us that deep sense of satisfaction or make us thankful. It's no wonder our parties are calorie-loaded potluck buffets for the guilt-ridden. We have to eat our guilt and our shame away. we got to gorge away our sorrow. But like the Jewish pilgrims, we need to remember, we need to remember that Christians were the ones who invented Mardi Gras. 
And although I know that most don't understand the historical, the spiritual nature of an event like that, I got to agree with Brian McLaren when he says that the tepid, bland dullness of many Protestants is a great misbehavior. We have done dirt theology. We have a relationship with this earth well and all of creation, but we have forgotten about taste bud theology. And I used to think, honestly, that guilt was God's tool in keeping me under control. But that is nowhere in the New Testament. Instead, do you know what the message of the New Testament is? It's the same one as the Old Testament. Freedom. And we have experienced guilt for too long. There is no shame in the kingdom of God. Do not feel guilty. Instead, do you know what you feel? gratitude. And these pilgrims get it. They are so grateful that in the middle of their journey, the party starts. They recognize that dirt theology and taste bud theology comes combined in the kingdom of God. I started thinking about this about two years ago, so I wrote in my journal, Lord, give me the grace to be grateful all the time, to observe goodness wherever it is, and to find ways to celebrate. And for many years, I've kept journals, but I've been intentionally writing things down that I've been grateful for over the last couple of years so that I might have some cause for celebration. Here's a picture of one of the pages. That is the, that's what the inside of my brain looks like. Now, it is crazy because I cannot stop once I start writing. I'm so grateful for Holly From the moment I met her, I was captured. I was trapped. She has held me mesmerized. She is the best person I know, authentic and real and compassionate and selfless. And she's allowed me to be a dad to Watson and Annabelle, who are the light of my life. I'm grateful for my dog, Eddie, that just turned 16 years old this week, and Luke, my other dog, who's my running partner. I'm grateful for porch time with my neighbors. I'm grateful that I don't have to go to Blockbuster Video anymore because of the invention of Netflix. (laughs) I'm grateful that my brother lets me have his iTunes password so I can watch movies, and I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. I'm grateful for NyQuil, the greatest medicine ever invented, along with Excedrin, Aleve, and penicillin. I'm grateful for sidewalks, new bike paths, and salt. What are you grateful for? The provision of God and the celebration of God should spring forth in us gratitude. And this is a call for celebration and fun. I'm grateful for my tandem bicycle, martial arts movies. I'm glad for sex, intimacy, and now birth control. I love Oklahoma sunshine in the winter and Michigan mornings in the summer. I'm grateful for ceiling fans, ankle socks, Chuck Taylor shoes, eyeglasses and contacts. I'm so glad I got to see the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. I am grateful for the John Wesley mug that Brian Davis got me for Christmas. It keeps my coffee and my heart strangely warm. I'm grateful for John and Andy at ProBike, which is my bike shop on Northwest 63rd and MacArthur, and might I add, the best one in town, and they will meet all of your cycling needs. I am grateful for Clark Underwood's YouTube channel and his Sunday to Sunday videos. I love the Dave Matthews Band U2, the Eagles, the 80s playlist on my Spotify, Eric Clapton's guitar playing, and Danny Gearing's violin. (laughs) 
It's in my journal, man. (laughs) I'm so grateful for my parents, my mom, who is the kindest person I know, my dad, who is the most disciplined person I know, my grandmother, Jewel, who literally gains the favor of everyone she runs into. I'm grateful to be the grandson of Jerry Oliver and Kes Pollock, both whom I hope to see someday and they won't have cancer. I'm grateful for my brothers and my sister-in-laws and my brother-in-laws. I'm grateful that Don Carson married my mother-in-law, Linda. I'm grateful that I knew my father-in-law, Larry Watson, for six years. I'm grateful for the Christ experience. When I go there, I am loved and not judged. That's my other church, by the way. And I'm grateful for Pastor Nick Lee. I'm, and I'm grateful for the old ladies there who hug me when I come to worship. I'm grateful for the Sparrow Project and how they have been teaching us how to be good neighbors. I'm grateful that Ezekiel found our church and took a journey all the way from the Congo through a refugee camp to Houston, Texas, then to El Reno, Oklahoma, and then to the Chipotle restaurant where he met Banning, Katie, and Lucy Dawson. I'm grateful for the post that I saw on Sherry Gately's Facebook page where she said, over the last year and a half, we have been praying here for this young man, Jared, during his time in OJA custody. He is finally home, and it is a testament to the grace and the mercy of God, and we cannot wait to see uh, we cannot wait to see what is in store for him. We have no doubt together that he will be a world changer and a walking example that our choices do not define us. Grace is freely given, and he demonstrates that. And we are very proud of you. And... I'm grateful for Debbie Smith, the world's greatest defense attorney who got Jared a fair and just hearing and a judge that was kind and merciful. I'm grateful that we have together been on this journey for the last three years and we are seeing our eight street dreams become a reality. We are doing the very real and good work of God. I'm grateful for this church board that holds me accountable and my pastors banning Christian Hope, Andrea, and Mikhail. And I'm grateful for the 156 stories of hope that have been told here over the last three years. I'm grateful that space is being made by people so that those who are lonely and broken and abandoned can be adopted into a good family. And I am grateful for the sacramental nature of the Christian faith, that it is both dirt theology and taste bud theology, and that wherever we see good, or whenever we see healing or peace, it is the very presence of Jesus in our midst. The scripture tells us that he is the beginning and the end of all things. He is the true human, the one who who connects us all together in this vast universe, and is the one who embodies both the best of dirt theology and taste bud theology. And I'm grateful that every single week, I get to come to this table. This table that we call a sacrament is also a table, and it's got a name. It's, we call it the Eucharist. And I don't know if you know what Eucharist means, but it's interesting. 
Eucharist simply means thank you. We come to worship every week to this table, and we say thank you. It is what Eucharist means. It means that we get to participate in the work of God, and we get to celebrate that work. It is at this table where God, uh, where God is, uh, and His future intent is coming at us, and His reality is meeting us in our presence. And when we come to this table, the only words I have is, thanks. So we tell stories here at this church because we want to participate in the work of God, but we also want to celebrate the work of God. And we tell the same story every single week, just like those pilgrims told the same story every time they ascended up that mountain and they sang Psalm 126. And the story goes like this, that we are thankful for Jesus Because on the night that he was betrayed by those he came to save, his friends, he gave thanks. And he broke the bread, which came out of the dirt. And he said, this, my friends, is my body. It represents something greater than what it is. And it is now broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And in such, we get to remember just like those pilgrims did. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, this cup represents the new covenant, the new creation, the new God order that is coming from the future into our present. It represents that. This cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink of it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. We say this, I say this to you every single week. I invite you to come down the aisle to leave your pew, uh, your uh, row out the left side and come down the aisle with your hands cupped. It is a symbol of our gratitude. It is a symbol of our thankfulness because we do not take communion here. We receive it. It is a good gift that comes from God and it is a cause for our celebration. So in just a moment, I invite you to come down to one of these, uh, to one of these servers, and I, allow you, I, I invite you to come down with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Allow these servers to place the bread into your hands, and then listen to what they have to say. And when you've heard what they've had to say, they're reminding you of this good story. I want you to dip the bread into the cup and then eat it, remembering that God has done something in Jesus for us, and it is cause for our celebration. If you are open to this gift of grace, you are welcome to this table. I want to let you know if you're a guest and you do not know this, uh, we want no barriers. Our wine is uh, non-alcoholic and our bread is gluten-free. So friends, come as a means of celebration. Hear these good words and then celebrate in your hearts as you return back to your seats. When you are ready, you may come.